Hey everyone, I want to start off this episode by apologizing for the long break in between shows. This this has been a crazy year. I mean, regardless of your views on COVID-19, it hurt a lot of people, right? Directly and indirectly. This podcast is more of a hobby for me. I don't generate any income from it. All costs are out of my own personal pocket. So when the lockdown hit, my priority switched to keeping my job and dealing with three kids who have been learning from home for almost a year with remote learning. Now, I didn't take into consideration the number of people who actually listened to the show, and I received a lot of kind messages from Marines reaching out. It was humbling, and I'm sorry for taking so long to release another episode. But excuses are like assholes, right? An apology is meaningless without action, so I'm going to dedicate more time each week to the show. I'll figure out scheduling, and we'll get back to the weekly releases. Again. Sorry about the delay. I appreciate everyone's patience. And now let's get on to the show. Welcome to episode 44 of History of the Marine Corps, Scorched Earth. Our last episode discussed a few battles. We spoke briefly about the Army's failure to invade Canada and move into a famous battle at sea involving the Constitution and the Guerriere. This episode discusses a few battles as well but we focused on more of the political battles fought in 1813. Madison was up for re-election, Napoleon was facing challenges in Russia, and the British were dedicating more resources to fighting the United States. There were a lot of moving parts during the second calendar year of the war, which made decisions on strategy complicated for everyone involved. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. After Lieutenant Bush's death during the battle between the Constitution and the Guerriere, Lieutenant Conti was placed in charge of the Marines. Second Lieutenant William H. Freeman was ordered to join the Guard on the Constitution and fill Conti's spot as well. Shortly after the two Marines came on board, they faced the Java off the coast of Brazil. It was business as usual for the Marines, and they provided a constant fire, killing many of the British and prevented the enemy from boarding the Constitution. A Marine killed the commander of the Java, and shortly after, the battle ended. When the smoke settled, the Java had 23 dead and 101 wounded. The Constitution had 25 casualties, including Marine Private Thomas Hansen, who died, and Privates Anthony Reaver, John Elwell, and Michael Chesley, who was wounded. On March 3, 1813, the Commandant wrote to Lieutenants Conti and Freeman his sincere congratulations on their success. The Legislator of Maryland was also impressed and gave Lieutenant Conti a pretty expensive sword for his gallant conduct during the entire war. Throughout the first year of the war, Marines participated in multiple naval battles and they did very well. On board the Wasp, the Marines were commanded by Sergeant Levi Porter. The captain of the ship, James Jones, reported, quote, The courage and exertions of the officers and crew fully answered my expectations and wishes, unquote. On October 17, 1812, the USS President captured the British packet Swallow with about $168,000 on board 
At the direction of the marshal of the district, Marines started to guard the Navy Yard in Charleston, Mass. First Lieutenant William Anderson and Second Lieutenant James L. Edwards commanded the Marines on board the USS United States and helped capture the Macedonian. On October 30, 1812, Captain Decatur reported that, quote, The enthusiasm of every officer, seaman, and Marine on board this ship on discovering the enemy, their steady conduct in battle, and the precision of their fire could not be surpassed, unquote. Marine Privates Michael O'Donnell and John Roberts were amongst the six killed, and Private John Layton was one of the six wounded. The Commandant wrote First Lieutenant Anderson on December 23rd and said, quote, The very handsome manner in which your men conducted in the late brilliant action of the frigate United States affords another proof of the valor of our Marines in meeting thus the unqualified approbation of their officers, unquote. The victories won by sailors and Marines was a much-needed morale boost to the American people. The U.S. government recognized their wins by giving them awards and throwing events such as parades and dinners. On January 9, 1813, the Marines and sailors on board the Constitution were marched through thousands of citizens to attend a dinner given by New York City. Twenty days later, Congress awarded silver medals to all officers on board the United States. Pennsylvania, Virginia, New York, Massachusetts, and the cities of Philadelphia and New York set aside public funds, created resolutions, and presented swords to the brave men fighting the war. Congress even gave $50,000 to distribute amongst the officers and crew as prize money of the United States. But while sailors and Marines were doing their part to bring victory, President Madison's plan to seize Canada failed. Although he did not initially support the idea of a navy for this war, more and more military leaders were coming forward and arguing otherwise. It was clear that this would no longer be a short war. The army was facing recruiting challenges, and they could not muster a large army to fight the British. The militiamen who were supporting the war were untrained, and the key players were not familiar with Madison's plan. The British understood the strengths and weaknesses of Madison and the United States. The army wasn't the threat. It was the Navy and the Marines who were providing the most resistance. As Madison was adjusting his game plan to rely more on naval warfare, the British were revising their tactics as well. They appointed a new commander to replace Vice Admiral Herbert Sayer with Admiral Sir John Borlas Warren. This guy had the experience. He was a seaman before the American Revolution and served at all Royal Navy levels, from lonely seamen to admiral. This guy was no stranger to combat. But that wasn't his strength. He was a diplomat, and he preferred that route to combat. The British wanted the war to end, so they brought in Warren to initiate an armistice. As we discussed a few episodes back, this war was more of an inconvenience to the British, as they were fighting the Napoleonic Wars. The British wanted the war with the U.S. to end, and if they couldn't establish peace, Warren was ordered to vigorously bring an end to the war through force. After only eight days, Warren determined that Madison and his administration would not end the war until Britain agreed to stop impressing American citizens. An armistice was out of the question, and Warren prepared to fight, 
but the United States Navy and Marines performed better than the British first anticipated. This is mostly thanks to privateers. They were everywhere, and developing a strategy that involved stopping hundreds of privateer ships spread from the U.S., West Indies, and the British Isles was difficult. To make things worse for the British, the United States Navy was winning naval battles, which confused and also angered politicians in London. But Warren still attempted peace. He sent a letter to Secretary of State Monroe on September 30th. Monroe took almost a month to respond, and his stance did not change. The U.S. would not stop fighting until Britain stopped taking U.S. citizens. This seems like a fair request to me, but this decision was above Warren's pay grade, and he did not have the power to make this call. Britain's Prime Minister believed impressment was necessary to Britain's military, and he wouldn't agree to the terms. Warren understood that his diplomacy experience would no longer be needed, and turned to his experience fighting wars. Due to the victories by the U.S. Navy, Warren's priority was to destroy the U.S. fleet. He had a couple of strategies. All trade and travel to main ports south of Rhode Island, which included the Mississippi River, were to be stopped. New England would face similar restrictions, but they would only apply to naval vessels. Commercial ships could still go in and out of port in New England. The reason for this difference was due to the American Federalist Party. They were anti-war, and blocking commercial traffic to a heavily populated Federalist region would more than likely change their views. Prohibiting warships from using the ports in New England, but allowing commercial vehicles in and out of harbors, was a way for the British to stop naval warships while appeasing the Federalist sympathizers in the area. But this tactic had its flaws. New England states, specifically Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, produced half of the privateers and letters of mark fighting this war. The vessels weren't identified as warships, and it was impossible to distinguish them from trade ships. Warren's responsibilities were growing out of control. On top of creating a blockade for ports south of Rhode Island, Warren also deployed a propaganda campaign in New England to keep Federalists on their side. He was responsible for blocking naval warships, organizing patrols along the coast to defend against multiple privateer ships, and he was directed to conduct amphibious operations in the Chesapeake Bay. However, the attacks were only part of a psychological operation. Warren did not have enough men to hold territory, so the charges were designed to create panic amongst U.S. citizens and keep citizens worried about where Britain would strike next. By the end of December, things started to change for the British. A few months earlier, Russia defeated Napoleon's army and caused him to withdraw from Moscow. Russia used scorched-earth tactics and stripped the land of food for both armies. This tactic resulted in the death of Napoleon's remaining horses and eliminated the French cavalry. Lack of horses meant a lack of towing capacity for cannons and supply wagons. Starvation and disease were rampant. With the French army strength declining, Warren dedicated more men and resources to the United States. He requested more ships, and his fleet increased to 97 warships. Commodore Rogers of the United States started to prepare for the increase in British presence. Winter in the Northeast is harsh, 
and Warren reported that blockading the American coast would be difficult during this time. Strong winds would blow warships off their course while giving privateers an extra boost. Thick fog would allow smaller ships to sail right past larger war vessels. Rogers knew this, and while Britain was worried about their strategy, he prepared for upcoming conflicts against the British Navy. But while military commanders were planning their war, Madison was busy preparing for the presidential election campaign. The way he was handling the war was the main topic during this election. Madison dismissed the importance of a naval force. He dedicated resources and much of his plan to an army victory. After multiple embarrassing defeats by the army and multiple victories by the navy, Madison's decision was easy to critique. The Republican caucus met on May 18th in Washington and voted for Madison's nomination. However, when New York Republican congressmen heard the news, they were furious and they refused to support him. They nominated DeWitt Clinton to run against the president. The Federalists didn't even bother to put a candidate in to run against Madison. They wanted him out, but Federalists did not have a candidate that would win. So they decided to get behind Clinton for president. Madison ended up winning that election, but it was a very narrow victory. Marines would participate in the inaugural ceremonies when Madison started his second term. The way the president handled this conflict needed adjustments, and Madison had to take a second look at his strategy. During the start of this war, he heavily relied on the Napoleonic Wars to distract the British. Although Napoleon was losing ground in Russia, it was the 1800s, and word traveled slowly. At this point, the reports coming in were still only considered rumors. Napoleon was still in command, and this meant the war was still on. But despite Madison's failed attempts at invading Canada the previous year, he decided to revisit that strategy again, now that we were challenging the British in the Great Lakes. The naval victories by U.S. warships and privateers interrupted British supply ships and increased the chances of an army victory. Madison also had the justification for political support from Congress to increase the fleet's strength and support another invasion into Canada. But when Madison presented his plan to Congress, Republicans focused mostly on the army. They agreed to increase the size, but were against increasing the budget of the Navy despite their success. The Federalists supported a larger Navy, which shouldn't come as a surprise. They were saying that since day one. Without dragging on with the political details, the House and Senate agreed to build four additional 74-gun battleships and six 44-gun frigates. The Naval Appropriation Act also allotted $410,788.55 to the Marine Corps. And just a quick side note here, this is an essential milestone for the Navy. Previous decisions to increase the size of the Navy have been temporary. As we discussed during the American Revolution, the Quasi-War, and the Barbary Wars, common practice was decommissioning naval warships after the conflict has ended. The decision to increase the Navy's size during the War of 1812 wasn't solely to fight the British. Congress was redesigning the United States defense policy. The purpose of creating this fleet was to adequately staff the country with the Navy to defend against European forces. Americans no longer viewed the Navy as a force to protect the country only during a time of war. The threat of a foreign, 
more powerful Navy changed the mentality of many Americans. Republicans used to think that a strong military was a threat to the Constitution. That view has shifted, and now many see the Navy as a tool to protect the country, and naval forces found a permanent place in the strategic planning of the nation's defense. U.S. warships and privateers worked together, and they had tremendous success. However, the Army was a different story, and Madison decided to find new leadership. Secretary of War Eustace resigned, and John Armstrong took his place. Armstrong hit the ground running, but ran into a wall when Congress was unwilling to increase taxes to pay for the war. Enforcing internal taxes were eliminated while Jefferson was in office, and the country relied on tariffs as income. Britain was the leading trading partner with the U.S., so when war broke out, the revenue from tariffs were drastically reduced. Taxes were a big deal at the time. The country is still relatively new, and many citizens remember fighting a war because of taxes. John Adams lost his second term for raising taxes to pay for the quasi-war with France. The last option was to take out a loan. Bankers happily loaned the United States $8.5 million at an extraordinary rate of 7.5%. Congress's lack of funding for a war they voted to partake in was counterintuitive and confusing. This lack of support eventually made its way to Britain, which significantly decreased President Madison's negotiation opportunities. Madison wanted to discuss peace, but while he was hoping for peace, he was revisiting his strategy on another Canadian invasion. The army was still too weak, and they wouldn't be a match against larger British forces. So Madison decided to focus on the eastern side of Lake Ontario and York, or today known as Toronto. Winning these battles would give the United States control of Lake Ontario, and with it, Upper Canada. In February, the U.S. started to prepare for the attack. 4,000 men were sent to Sackett's Harbor to prepare to attack Kingston. Another 3,000 were sent to Buffalo. The plan was to attack Kingston, the British soldiers' garrison there, and any ships under construction were to be taken or destroyed. They would then move to York and destroy ammunition supplies and any warships there as well. After York was captured, Marines would combine forces with Buffalo soldiers and attack Fort George and Erie. The timing of this operation depended on the ice melting on Lake Ontario. It was a great plan, but with the recent defeat, the Army's confidence levels were low. The British were increasing the number of men in Kingston, and Americans estimated that forces were in the 6,000 to 8,000 range. However, the United States did not send anyone to recon the area. If they did, they would have found that the entire British troops were only about 600 British soldiers and about 1,400 militiamen. American military leaders did not want to risk another embarrassing defeat, so instead of gathering intelligence, they convinced Secretary Armstrong and President Madison to change their plans. Instead of taking the east side of Lake Ontario first, the target was changed to York. On April 23, 1813, Commodore Chauncey on the flagship Madison sailed 14 ships from Sackett's Harbor. On board were 1,700 under the command of General Dearborn. They were to attack York. Chauncey had a force of nearly 3,000 made up mostly of sailors and marines and a militia force of 450. It took four days to reach their target 
and the army landed with warships providing cover. Not everyone had a warm fuzzy about this new strategy. Jones was one of them. While he agreed that a victory by the United States could be done relatively quickly, there were consequences with this attack that Madison, Chauncey, and Armstrong weren't taking into consideration. Targeting York instead of Kingston will sacrifice control of both lakes, Ontario and Erie. Defining this strategy will be one of the most important decisions of this war. Unfortunately, Madison's decision would have significant consequences. The British understood what was at stake. They dedicated resources to Kingston and Lake Ontario and assigned Sir James Yeo to defend the lakes. His orders were clear. Quote, the first and paramount object of His Majesty's provinces is the defense of His Majesty's provinces of North America. Unquote. He was to avoid offensive attacks against the Americans and only provide defense to the port. They were fortifying Kingston while the Americans targeted York. At 0800, the battle began. It started with the schooners bombarding the beach west of town. Defending artillery from shore returned fire, but was ineffective. General Pike led the amphibious raid, and his army outnumbered the British by at least two to one. He also had continuous fire from the schooners offshore. The amphibious landing was completed with very little resistance, and they took the beach in about two hours. The British led by Major General Sir Robert Hale Schaefe, saw that he was outnumbered and decided to retreat without fighting. Before the British fled, they destroyed their ships and naval stores so the Americans would not capture their resources. Schaefe ordered his men to blow up one of the main ammunition storage sites in the middle of town. Unfortunately for General Pike, the explosion did not occur until he and his men were nearby the building. The blast killed Pike and 200 American soldiers. But despite the chaos, the British didn't take advantage of the confusion and they continued to retreat. The United States now owned York, and its new target was the Niagara region. General Dearborn was very impressed with the naval force, which included the Marines, and commended them for their action. Quote, the capture of Toronto had determined the superiority on Lake Ontario of the United States Marine. Chauncey sailed his fleet on May 9th to Fort Niagara. There, the U.S. military would prepare an assault against Fort George, and on May 27th, the battle commenced. Captain Smith led the Marines, and he was assigned to Colonel McComb's regiment, which was made up of around 4,000 men. It was another quick battle, and the Marines stormed the beaches, silencing the defenses as they advanced. The United States was able to take Fort George quickly, but while they were securing the fort, the British attacked Sackett's Harbor. Major General Jacob Brown of the New York Militia was in charge of the harbor's defense. Brown was anticipating the attack, and he was prepared for the British fleet. The United States were outnumbered and outgunned, but Brown could call for more militiamen while the British were deciding how to attack. The British decided to wait until morning, which would be a mistake. Waiting until morning gave the Americans the extra time needed to prepare and bring in more militiamen. When the British landed the next morning, there were enough Americans to put up a strong defense. The British were not able to take Sackett's Harbor, and they retreated back to Kingston. During the attack, the Marines and Navy barracks were set on fire, 
And according to Captain Smith's letter to the Commandant, the Marines lost everything. As the months went by, the British fleet would pick off American warships in the Great Lakes. In just a couple of months, Chauncey lost four schooners to the British, and his resources were getting low. Americans had a couple of good battles during the beginning of 1813, but as the year went on, they failed to make any progress against Canada. The British would continue to attack strategic points, which included the notorious Murray's Raid. The decision to ignore Kingston was starting to look like a terrible idea. The British had the strategic advantage, and Madison's strategy to invade Canada was failing again. Even though the United States Navy and Marines were having a lot of success during the beginning of the war, Commodore Rogers predicted that this wouldn't last. The United States did well because the British initially underestimated them. When word of their success reached Britain, more ships were sent to help defeat the Americans. On June 1st, the Chesapeake met the Shannon, and a battle commenced. This was an intense battle. First Lieutenant James Broom commanded the Marines, and he died early in action. As the two ships approached each other, the Shannon's anchor flute got stuck on the Chesapeake's quarterport. Sharpshooters from both ships fired at each other, and Lawrence, the Chesapeake commander, was shot by Lieutenant John Law of the British Royal Marines. In Teddy Roosevelt's first book, The Naval War of 1812, he discussed Marines during this battle. Quote, on the upper deck, the only men who behaved well were the Marines. But of their original number of 44 men, 14, including Lieutenant James Broom and Corporal Dixon, were dead, and 20, including Sergeants Twist and Harris, wounded, so that there were left but one corporal and nine men, several of whom had been knocked down and bruised, though reported wounded. Unquote. There's even a documented account of a Marine clubbing a British sailor to death with his musket. 14 of the 62 men killed were Marines, and 18 of the 82 were wounded. Historians argue that the high casualty rate of the Chesapeake meant that Loris was not prepared for the fight. If he stuck to his orders, he could have avoided the conflict and wouldn't have lost all of those men. But the damage was done, and the Shannon captured the Chesapeake. The crew was captured as well, and they were sent to Halifax as prisoners of war. Among them were Marine Sergeants John Twist and William Harris, Corporal James Oralt, Pfeiffer Isaac Porter, and 26 privates. Marine Private Hoffman would die from his wounds while traveling to Halifax. There were mixed feelings about Lawrence's decisions to attack the Shannon. Although many citizens thought it was heroic for Lawrence to fight, but to President Madison, he was furious. Furious that Lawrence decided to fight, furious that Lawrence disobeyed his orders, lost a frigate, and hundreds of men. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.